talking to Adam Pohl, play-by-play voice of the Bowie Bay Sox, Stan the Fan, Craig Heist. This is the Batter Round. If you've tuned in, you're listening to us from the Live Casino Hotel Studios, and please like our show and share it if you're watching on Facebook Live. Yeah, I mean, let me ask you uh, something. I, I mean, obviously, we've all, we've all been enamored with what's going on uh, in Delmarva uh, right. with, with that that record and and some of the guys that are having some bang up years down there, but uh, overall, what is it about this Bowie Bay Sox team uh, that's the most impressive for you right now in this early part of the season? Other than the play by play voice of the team. Well, yeah. Besides that, because we, we we know that's as solid as it gets. And the play by play voice's daughter. I mean, well, there you go. That, yeah. That's what it is. Obviously, the Bay Sox has had a very rough start this yeah. season. This has been a great week for Bowie, but you know, you're still looking at a team that uh, that uh, that has the worst record in the Eastern League right now. But but really, the the, the thing is that the, the team has really struggled offensively, and I feel that system wise, there is more of a depth in starting pitching uh, than uh, than I have seen. This is my 13th year with an Orioles. Affiliate. I've been a real fan my whole life. So uh, th- this is there's just so many intriguing guys, Craig, uh, to follow. I mean, it's almost every night. You know, four of the five starters for the Bay Sox are Hunter Harvey, a former first round pick; Zach Lowther, a second round pick; Alex Wells, former minor league pitcher of the year in the Orioles system, and then uh, also then of course Bruce Zimmerman. So you've got four big time, you know, big prospects. Uh, that are looked upon as guys that could start in Baltimore down the road, that are four of the five right now in the Bay Sox rotation. And and then you think about it, you've got Dean Kramer that just came back and made his first start in Frederick. So how, Kramer, how did he do? I was going to I was going to ask you, how did he do? Are you aware of how he pitched at Frederick? Well, he threw three and two-thirds shutout innings. He had high strikeout numbers. The thing with Kramer, sometimes his, because of that, he can be a guy, he, he's a guy kind of like Keegan Aiken, and Zach Lowther, where it just doesn't seem like guys see his fastball very well. He has a lot of foul balls off of his fastball. And he had a 27-pitch second inning in his start in Frederick. So he only went three and two-thirds innings, so he got up around 80 pitches, in, in essence, four innings of work. Uh, but but Kramer's going to be in Bowie very soon, and then a guy that could be up to Norfolk shortly. And, um, and then, of course, there's guys in Frederick, like Cody Sedlock that's had a bounce back here, the former first-round pick. And Michael Bauman, of all the pitchers, um, Zimmerman and Bauman. Zimmerman, of course, and Bowie that we just talked about prior. Bauman is a former Orioles third-round pick uh, that is in Frederick. Those are the ones that have had the biggest jump in stuff. Uh, uh, from, from reading things, Bauman looks like he's put a few extra kicks on that fastball to be more of a power pitcher. He's striking out a ton of guys. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's going to be in Bowie. Uh, in Bowie down the road as well, so, Let, or in the very near future. So, uh, and you're seeing it too, Blaine Knight from Delmarva going up sure. to Frederick. So I could go on and on, but but the starting pitching is exciting. Let me ask you though about the the most still the most enigmatic enigmatic and electrifying name is Hunter Harvey. Uh, right. I know I looked about three weeks ago, and the ERA was like in the low sevens, I think, or high one, sixes. One and two right now with a 478 yeah, ERA. He's dropped that ERA close to yeah, two runs. And and nine walks, 27 strikeouts yeah. in uh, 26 and a third inning. How is the stuff with Hunter Harvey? And if he had another three or four dominant starts and healthy, could he be on the track to Norfolk? It's a good question. Uh, I think it's possible. I think that 
I, my guess, though, is that Harvey's going to be a buoy a little bit longer, and that's nothing against Harvey. Mm-hmm. But they don't want to push him too far and too fast when he has not really pitched much in the last three or four years. And I think that that loss of development time is, is the biggest thing that stands out right now because Harvey is a guy that's still throwing in the mid-90s, and, uh, and he's got a really good curveball. Um, but the question is, Obviously, can he put together a long stretch? So look at his last three starts. Uh, two of them, he is not allowed a run, right? And then the other one, he went two and two-thirds innings and allowed six runs, three, and gave up three home runs. So for Harvey, a big thing they're working on him with, actually, to be honest, is staying on top of the baseball. It's something that, that it's almost like finishing your pitches at, at times. His, his hand placement is almost on the side of the baseball, and he can really start leaving the ball up. And at that time, his fastball, even though it's 94, 95, you know, it's very hittable. And, um, and, and I think that that's going to be something to really watch down the road. They want him to be healthy, uh, but there's not really a major innings limit, per se, on him. Um, he's pitching just like any other pitcher. And they want him to go every fifth day, and, and, and he, he needs the experience. So I wouldn't be surprised if he's in double A almost the entire season. Yeah. That's just a speculation. Okay. And um, and he could be a guy that could really make a big jump next year. Last year, last time out, his longest stint of the season, six innings, uh, allowed only uh, one walk on five strikeouts, did not allow an earned run. And, Stan, that's where you say you were talking about an ERA that was like in the mid-7s. Yeah, uh, right. Well, that that made his ERA come down from 620 to 478. Okay. That yeah, last he start. retired 15 in a row in yeah. that start. So he really got on a roll. We're talking with Adam Pohl, a play-by-play voice of the Bowie Bay Sox. Adam, one name we haven't discussed is a bullpen arm that was picked up in the mm-hmm. um, in the uh, Manning Machado trade, and that is Zach Pop, who I know is on the IL right now. Uh, yeah. His ERA, though, was 0.84, and his whip was 1.03, 10 and two-thirds innings, uh, 11 Ks, and only uh, seven hits allowed, no home runs allowed. How dominant can he be, and what's the prognosis on getting off the IL? You know, I, I don't know exactly what is wrong with him. I, I think it's similar to what happened in spring training when his velocity was down, and I think they saw a dip in velocity in his last two outings or three outings in the Bay Sox, so they wanted to shut him down for a week or two. Okay. And I wouldn't be surprised if he hit somewhere else to, to throw. You know, he's starting to ramp things back up okay. now. One of the things with injuries in the minor leagues is that uh, the majority of times when a player gets injured, they actually go down to Florida and they rehab it in their in Sarasota. Right. But when a guy is, is going to come back very shortly, they just stay with the team. And Pop has just stayed uh, with the Bay Sox here in this last week uh, or 10 days uh, of being uh, on the uh, so-called, you know, on the injured list. So uh, the thing is that he obviously is not, uh, I thought in his first few outings, he looked like he did have that fastball in the mid-90s, but he's basically almost like a right-handed Zach Brighton, to be honest. I mean, he gets unbelievable run on his two-team sinking fastball, and then he throws a slider. So he's more of a ground ball pitcher than a strikeout pitcher, but boy, does his stuff move. And, and especially late last year, he was electric. To me, he's a guy that could move quickly. I know he's pretty young. Mm-hmm. He was only drafted in 2017 uh, by the Dodgers, but boy, uh, when you've got a guy that's a hard thrower and just a two-pitch guy that's just going to go out 
and just get after you for an inning. Uh, you know, he, he's not the kind of guy that needs to be in the minor leagues as long as, uh, as, as a long-term starting pitcher where you're trying to build up innings. So it wouldn't be a surprise to me, I mean, if Pop uh, is right physically, if he would be in Baltimore this year. All right, let's, uh, let's move real quick before we let you go, and we're talking mm-hmm. to uh, Adam Pohl, play-by-play voice of the Bowie Bay Sox. Two offensive players also on the I.L., is the much-touted Yuzniel uh, Diaz picked up in the Manny Machado trade, seen by most as the most important player out of the deal. So far, I think it would be fair to say that he's been a fairly decent disappointment uh, in his development. You know, what he needs to do is just um, – he, he needs to show the tools that he possesses more often because he, he's kind of a wow tools guy. You know, when he hits a home run, oh my goodness! I mean, he, you know, he he's got some big time pop. Uh, he's got uh, a great arm. Uh, he plays with a little bit of that Cuban flair. That's exciting. Excuse me, but he is. You know, he's the guy that that uh, I think I talked about this before. But you know, when Tree Mancini was in Bowie in 2015 and early in 16, and and then I'll give it to Austin Hayes as well. When Austin Hayes came up to the Bay Sox in 2017 and then late last year. I mean, you're talking about guys that are consistently hitting the ball 105 miles an hour. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. the the exit velocities, I mean, they are just, they're they're hitting ropes uh, constantly. You know, one, two, three times a night. And with Diaz, you know, you'd see it, and then, you know, you look down two or three days later, and he's, you know, two for nine, and he's got an infield hit, and that one line drive shot, he, he just, it has to be more consistent. He's not hitting the ball off the barrel of the bat enough. The good thing is that he's still young. You know, he made it to double A at the age of 20, and he got an enormous signing bonus. He actually has the biggest signing bonus for a player in Bay Sox history, albeit the Orioles did not give it to him. And the, the thing is, you kind of expect a guy like that, uh, to be ahead of the game and a very fast riser. So he has kind of plateaued a little bit at the double-A level. And um, it's going to be interesting to see. He came out of the game a few weeks ago running the bases. Yeah, so he came up a little bit lame trying to go first to third on a single. And uh, he has been down in Florida. Uh, right. So hopefully he'll be able to, to return in the next week or two. And, uh, and obviously there's some urgency. You know, you're in a new organization. Last year in AA, he hit better than 300 in Tulsa and then came to the Orioles and hit, you know, in the 230s. And he's been hitting right kind of around that 230 level again this year, albeit early and in a lineup that nobody was hitting in when All he right. was in it. So right, hopefully la- this can spark him a little bit. All right, one last player also picked up in that trade. He's mm-hmm. uh, And you've clued me in that the age shouldn't be that big a consideration. Ryland Bannon is, what, 24 and at Bowie? And he's having, unlike uh, Preston Palmero, Ryan McKinney, who are both a little younger, I think, but he's right. having a really nice year. He's a fun player to watch. I'm telling you, you know, like uh, last year defensively, it stood out right away. You know, the first game he played, it was like, whoa, look at this guy's range. So he's a second baseman and a third baseman. He's got a pretty good arm, and he's not a big guy at all. So he's, he's one of those guys where you realize that baseball, you don't have to be a giant to be a baseball player. You know, he's probably five foot nine, five ten. But he's got a good arm. He's got great pop at the plate. Uh, last year, he batted with a very wide open stance. Um, I'm trying to think of the uh, Tony Batista. Do you remember Tony Batista? Sure. 
that crazy stance he had, you know, he was almost yep. muscled almost out of the box. Bannon had a stance like that, and he would swing his left leg in straight up like huge leg kick and come down. Well, and he struggled in double A with Bowie last year in 30 games. So he ends up uh, uh, this offseason basically becoming a pretty uh, general straight-ahead hitter with a lot with without much pre-pitch movement. Uh, worked a lot with Jeff Manto, the Orioles minor league hitting coordinator on that. And he's hitting better than 300 at Bowie. Uh, he leads the Eastern League in doubles. What's his, uh, so, what's his upside? In 30 seconds. In 30 seconds. You know, I think that uh, I think he could be uh, another kind of Stevie Wilkerson type of player. Okay. You know, where where he's a guy that can probably hit 250, 260 in the major league. He's got more power than Wilkerson, uh, but he could play multiple positions. So, so, so he's going to give the Orioles a lot of uh, viability and really flexibility going forward. All right. We really appreciate your coming on, Adam. Always informative. Uh, how's the baby? Three months old now? <laughs> This is four and a half months old. Four and a half months old. So, What's her name? Yeah, Alexandra. She is really photogenic, I got to tell you. <laughs> All right, stay well. We'll talk Thank to you, you down guys. the road a little bit. All right? All righty. Thank you so much. See All you guys. Right. All right, there he goes, Adam Pohl. Yeah. Always informative, always enthusiastic. He loves being a daddy. Yeah, and uh, loves baseball, too. Yes, he and, does. and obviously it shows almost every time we have him on the air. Yeah. He loves Craig Heist. Well, all he, he does is he talk will about he will him. pop up to the press box and yeah. say hello to me and Steve. Yeah, so. no question about it. All right, we're going to be joined in just a moment now by the uh, general manager of the Aberdeen Ironbirds. Their, their season starts, their home season starts, and they have the home opener this year on June 14th. So just over a month to go uh, for the Aberdeens to get ready for the 2000 and. Is that what you're calling them now, the Aberdeens? The Aberdeen Ironbirds. Did I say the Aberdeens? <laughs> you, you said the Aberdeens. It was a shorthand. It was a shorthand. Joining us right now is the Aberdeens <laughs> general manager. We, of course, know that they are the Ironbirds, and occasionally they've got another name or two up their uh, sleeve. That is Matt Slatus. Matt, how are you, my friend? I'm good. I'm good. I'm sitting here in the beautiful Aberdeen. I am good. You're in the high Aberdeens or the low Aberdeens? I will be the high Aberdeens today. How's right. that? There you all go. Right. First of all, how's your son doing? He's about, he, I'm guessing, year and a half, 18 months? He, he's almost Jonah. 18 months. Yeah. He's doing well. I uh, While I sit here at work today, I'm getting uh, photos of him and my wife and my mom and my sister. They're all enjoying the morning at Belvedere Square. So oh, good. I, I'm a little envious, but at least baseball season's coming up fast. It is coming up fast. You've got just just a touch over a month to get uh, everything dusted off and ready to go. Um, talk about does it? Am I right in saying that because your season starts later than than regular baseball or the regular minor leagues in the independent league? You don't start till mid June. That you might fall privy to just think, ah, we got more time, and then all of a sudden you get about this time removed from opening day, and you go, oh. Jesus whiz, we got this to do or that to do? It, it sneaks up on you. I'll tell you, usually around the winter meetings, um, you know, we fly out to some warm destination. Mm -hmm. I think San Diego next year. It was Vegas this year. And I, I look at my full-season colleagues, and they're starting to squirm a little. And I, I'm happy to sit by the pool for one more round. <laughs> but as we get to March or so, you know, when spring training hits, those guys are in high gear, and we're starting to squirm. So the the longer off season still sneaks up on you. It's um, it's just as challenging as if we were in a full season league. 
but I am uh, I'm thankful to not be working 70, 80 nights a year. It, right. To me, this, this baseball light version at 38 games, is it's the perfect number. Well, you know, you, you talk about things sneaking up on you. All of a sudden, you look up and uh, single-game tickets for this team go on sale this morning, correct? They, they've been on sale for one hour and seven minutes. There you go. Uh, couldn't be happier. Believe it or not, we've got less than 200 tickets left for opening night. So. Really? Things are going really, really well. Fans are excited. Um, if you're in the area today, come on down to the ballpark. We'll be here till 1 o'clock. Families can play catch on the field. Uh, for the first time in almost 20 years, this, this ballpark is back to being a Coca-Cola park, so you can come in and, and sample the change we made there. We've got dollar hot dogs, dollar Coke products, and, and just a whole lot of fun for the family. Well, you know what? You, you mentioned about the, you know, if you go up there today, that, you know, families can go on the field and play, play catch and things of that nature. One of the things the Orioles have done on Mother's Day and Father's Day in the past uh, recent recent years is the the fact that you know Father's Day dads and their kids mothers you know they go out there and play catch on the field and I think that's a pretty neat idea. It, it, it's great, you know. We all I grew up in New York City, just outside the city, and some, if someone had given me the chance as a, a suffering Met fan to go play on the field, you know, that would have made my year. It probably would have made my teenage years. And would have been and, one of the best players on the field. <laughs> yeah, I would have, especially in the '90s. Well, you know, fans can play catch on the field here every Saturday before the game, and that's what minor league baseball is all about. It's about getting people out to the park in a safe and affordable environment, and just giving them a chance to to live those dreams every time they're here. We're talking with uh, Matt Slatus, general manager of the Aberdeen Ironbirds. Uh, you've got the, the home opener coming up and the opener of your season on the 14th and 15th, a brief two-game stand. But then in July, it's uh, quite amazing. you got 17 home dates. Uh, other than keeping your fingers crossed that the weatherman cooperates, <laughs> what sure. is that like to have that many home dates in, in a 30-day time slot? It's actually 19, and I, and I know 19? it because I'm, I'm one part excite, filled with excitement and one part filled with dread. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun, but like you said, you're, you're constantly monitoring the weather. You're not sleeping a whole lot. Um, it's almost like I have a newborn again because I get <laughs> home at midnight and I'm right back in the office at 7 a.m. It, it's a grind. You know, that time of year for me is uh, that's when everything happens. That's when... All the hard work that myself, my staff, mainly my staff, have put in in the off season, that's when it all comes to fruition. So in those 19 games, we're worried about everything from getting the visiting team into town and making sure the umpires are in their hotel to the fire marshal and fireworks going off. Do we have enough hot dogs? Do we have enough water? It's, it's, it's a nonstop go, go, go. But then we get to August, and uh, I don't want to say we take our – foot off the gas pedal, but it's nice to slow down a little bit as we head into the off season. Yeah, but one of the neat things about August the 3rd, uh, you do change team names, uh, the Aberdeen Legacy. I'm excited about it. Yeah, and, and you uh, are going to honor the entire Ripken family that day. We are. So Cal and Bill will be here. Um, Vi, their mom, will be here. Ellie, their sister, will be here. And what this facility was before it was a ballpark, before it was a youth baseball complex, was just hundreds of acres of farmland. And what it's become is a, a gathering place for kids to play baseball on the East Coast, for families to come out to the Upper Chesapeake region. And, you know, I, Cal's my boss. And when I talk to him about what his legacy is, 
sure it's the streak, and I think everybody knows that and recognizes 26-32, but it's a whole lot more than that. It's about leaving the game better than he found it, and I think that that's what we want to recognize is the impact that Cal and Bill have had on youth baseball in continuing to get kids to play the game, not just in Maryland, but around the globe. You know, he's the the commissioner's ambassador to the youth game, and it's no secret that baseball has struggled in the last couple of years with getting kids to play. So some of the things that he's worked on just to get more kids out there, and baseball's doing a great job supporting him in the game they play every year at the Little League World Series, in some of the youth programs, the play ball initiatives. So we want to recognize them that night. And obviously, we don't want to shy away from recognizing the streak either. So we've come up with a really cool uniform. It's got Bill, Cal Senior, and Cal Junior on the on the patch. And the the hat they're wearing that night actually has a silhouette of one of Cal's many batting poses because we all know he had a bunch of different stances. <laughs> yeah, he did. And then Craig and I saw Craig and I saw every single one of them. <laughs> well, you you were watching history then. A lot of it. Um, because he was a special player. So, you know, we've got a 2632 cap. The family will be here. Um, we actually have on our website right now for sale, you can buy four tickets for 60 bucks. It's the same price as any other time you want to buy four tickets. But if you purchase it through the site, you actually get an autographed 8x10 from both Bill and Cal. So it's going to be a fun night. Hopefully people come out to the ballpark and celebrate them. And we're already starting to put together um, special plans for next year because it's going to be the, the 25th anniversary of 2131. Wow. So I think we'll have some, That's some things up our sleeves. incredible to think of that. Yeah. How, in dealing with Cal and Billy, how hard is it for them to, to for you to get their buy-in? I don't think they come in and go, hey, um, Matt, let's <coughs> let's celebrate my – this thing and that thing and Billy and the legacy. So you come up with ideas when you approach them, uh, or do you go to John Maroon first and sort of say, what do you think Cal's reaction to this is going to be? How do you approach them, and what do you generally find their reaction? You know, I go right to the source. Um, So usually I'll start with Cal, um, and I'll I'll go to Bill at the same time. But it's – they're not guys who like self-promotion. So I know when I bring them some of these things, it might be met with a little bit of a squirm, but ultimately I think if it's, if it's tasteful, it's, if it's supportive of the game and if it's supportive of Harford County, Aberdeen, greater Baltimore, they'll usually get behind it. Um, You know, one of the commitments they've got to the Ironbirds this summer is to be out here on U sports night, Saturday, June 15th. It's the second game of the year. And we're going to have probably upwards of a thousand, uh, Little League players, softball players, Babe Ruth players down on the field before the game, and, and Cal and Bill are going to take photos with every single one of them. So it, if it's in support of what they believe in, growing the game, getting kids involved, getting families involved, they're more than happy to do it. And sometimes I have to remind them, hey, you know, you do have the 26-32 streak. You are the greatest infielder of all time. Um, we want to recognize you for it. So they're always supportive. They're they're really great owners, and they're they're great people to work with. Well, now you saw talked about nineteen home dates now in the month of July, correct? Yes. All right. One of those is July the nineteenth, which is my favorite day of the year in Aberdeen, as we've known, come to know on this show, and that's Steam Crabs Night. <laughs> the, the crabs will reemerge this year, so we've. <laughs> 
yeah, the steam crabs became so popular. We sold so much merchandise. We sold it all around the world. Those two games sold out. Um, but it still got kind of tired. So this year we re-envisioned the crabs. We reimagined them. We've got a new crab mascot. We've got new logos. Uh, I'm actually sitting in my office right now wearing a brand new steam crabs hat. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. And one of the coolest things about that night, you know, this this food frenzy, we'll call it, has taken over minor league baseball with all these clubs changing their team names. Uh, my counterpart, the GM of North in Connecticut, the Connecticut Tigers, the, the Detroit Tigers affiliate, they play a game every year as the Connecticut Lobster Rolls. Yep. So it just so happens I was able to convince Dave to send his lobster roll uniforms down to Aberdeen. So we will have a, a seafood showdown that night between the steamed crabs and the lobster rolls. Doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> it there really is, doesn't. There is nothing more quintessentially minor league than watching the steamed crabs play the lobster rolls. Now, uh, speaking of steamed crabs, are you still serving steamed crabs out at Aberdeen Ironbirds games, or is that gone by the wayside? Definitely not has gone by the wayside for sure. So we are, it, to my knowledge, the only ballpark in America that will sell you a bag of crabs, let you take them back to your seats, and you hack away at them. So we, you know, we we want to have fun foods in this ballpark. And being where we are, you know, you, you get up to the roof of this building, you and you can see the Chesapeake Bay. So for being that close to to the bay, we knew we needed crabs. So steamed crabs, crab pretzel, boiled shrimp, you name it. We sell more seafood in this place than hot dogs. Uh, let me talk a little bit about the baseball that people will see. First of all, refresh our memory. Who's going to be part of this staff uh, that takes the field? You know, the manager, the coaches that will sure. take the field on June 14th. So we're returning some familiar faces, and we've got some new faces. Uh, Kevin Bradshaw, who managed here two years ago, is the skipper of the club. He comes back up this year. KB's been in baseball. Um, will probably kill me for saying this, but I'm guessing it's about as long as I've been alive. Uh, I know he was a, a teammate of Billy Beans with the Tigers, played some AAA ball for a while. Um, he also was uh, kind of the orchestrator this year. He oversaw Orioles spring training in the okay. minor league camp. Um, so he's a great name to have. Uh, and locally, believe it or not, the, the new Orioles front office hired the hitting coach from Hartford Community that's College. That's right. We did a story on that in Press Box. And that's a, he's, got, he's, he's a deep diver in the analytics and launch angle theories that uh, are so popular today. Yeah, he is, and I'm I'm looking forward to meeting him. I, I've only heard good things. His name's Tom Eller. Uh, I yep. actually think Tom has been out with the Delmarva Club the last couple months. I think their hitting coach had either a, a birth in the family or, you know, for some reason needed to go home. So Tom's had some real hands-on experience here at the start of the season with the, the Delmarva team that last I checked was 24-4. and four. So something wow. something's working out there. So he'll, he's going to join us as our hitting coach and uh, we've got a brand new pitching coach, kid named Robbie Avilas, joining us from the Indians organization. So it, it, it's going to be a fun year. It's going to be. Uh, it's great when you have a, a leader like KB, who's been doing this for a long time, who's really a you know a teacher and a leader of men, and then some young new faces. Um, I think that the future Orioles, our players, are in really good hands with this staff. And and before we kind of let you go to wrap things up, I know you don't know who. The Orioles are going to draft on June the 3rd. But with the number one pick in the entire draft, my guess is, and again, I, I'm just basing this on things I've seen in the past, that player, in my estimation, stands a pretty good chance to start at Delmarva. But I would think that any picks after that 
are fair game to be part of your roster. Is that a, a fair assessment to make? Yeah, I, I think you're. Unfortunately, I think you're correct. Um, you'd love you know, to have. Just, you'd love to have whoever it is, number one pick in the entire draft, debut as an Ironbird. But I, I sure would. Yeah. It's like you said. It's above my pay grade. I have no <laughs> insight to who it's going to be, but. You figure if it's the catcher out of Oregon State, that kid's going to be pretty refined and, and probably hitting at a better level than the New York Penn League. So like you said, he could end up in Delmarva. And if it's Bobby Witt Jr., the high school player, they may send him down to the Gulf Coast League for the year. So I'm very hopeful. I think that uh, for ticket sales, for fun, for fan fun, um, we'd love to have that guy here, even if he's only here for a week or two. Yep. Um, but either way, you know, this is a – I don't know if everybody realizes how big and momentous this is, but the Orioles select first. It's exciting. It really is exciting. Well, you know, if you you think back uh, with the Washington Nationals and their early struggles as a franchise when they got to the district, you think about Bryce Harper. You think about (laughs) Steven Strasburg. And those are guys that can change the course of your franchise, and that's why it's so important with a team that now has – Obviously, admit it, there's a rebuild going on, uh, and this organization, they cannot afford to miss on this first pick. You've got some smart guys down there at Oriole Park these days, and I, I think that uh, whatever they do is going to be the right decision, and, and hopefully this is the, the first big step in that rebuild and um, getting a winner on the field here in the next handful of years. Hey, uh, we'll let you go after one more quick question. August sure. 9th is Star Wars night. Now, the Orioles had one the other night, and unfortunately they didn't get the greatest weather cooperation that night. But then I turn on that same night later, I'm watching the Mets, and the the Mets in Milwaukee played like a 17-inning game or 16 innings. It was Star Wars there. What is it that is so uh, uh, so captivating for fans of all ages about Star Wars night? You've got one August the 9th. I think it's just a it's a movie that gets better with age, and what Disney's done with Star Wars, keeping it fresh and new. You know, there isn't a generation that doesn't love Star Wars. So for families who watched it in the 80s, for kids who see it today to come out and see these characters, it's a blast. And to watch fireworks coordinated to you know, the John Williams soundtrack, to see Darth Vader in person on the concourse. We, we always have probably 40 to 50 characters here. We've wow. got guys with lightsabers. It, it, it's just a blast. It's fun, and it's it's a blast from the past and the future. All right. Let's do this again right uh, right as the season opens, all right? We'll get Great. you on uh, either a few days before that first weekend or a few days after, all right? Sounds good. Thanks, guys. And, and, we'll, and, we'll, have you on, and we'll have you on right before crab night. Yeah. Up the ballpark. Perfect. Right. Hey, thanks very much, Matt Slatis. We enjoy the partnership and love uh, love promoting minor league baseball at the highest levels, like out at Aberdeen. All right, thank, thank you. you. All right, there you have it, uh, <laughs> uh, Matt Slatis. Boy, what a life he's got. Yeah, you know, to he he probably goes very easy from about September fifth or eighth till like. January, then it perks up. Then it perks up. It perks up, and then all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose. All hell breaks loose, but the regular season for the Major League start in late March now. Yep. And then he still has a chance to sit back a little bit. And and then all hell really breaks loose about about mid-May. They open at home 
June the 14th and 15th with a brief two-game stand, right. and then they come back on June 18th. So the 14th and 15th, they're home against Hudson Valley. It's a Saturday and Sunday at 7.05 and 6.05. It might be a Friday and Saturday. I'm sorry. Yeah. Then the 18th – well, wait a minute. I can back up on it. It's it's a Friday and Saturday, 7.05 and 6.05. Then Tuesday – Wednesday and Thursday, they have three 7.05 games on the 18th through the 20th versus Tri-City, then a brief road trip, and then they're home against Brooklyn again a Tuesday through Thursday, the 25th of June through the 27th. So plenty of opportunities to see your Ironbirds. And don't forget 19 games at home in the month of July. That is amazing, 19 games. That shows how good I am at math. I counted it about four times and came up with 17. You must have went to Kenwood. I did not go to Kenwood. (laughs) Hey, the Press Box High School Lacrosse Show is sponsored by Jerry's Tire. That's right, located in Baltimore City, just steps away from Little Italy and historic Jonestown. Jerry's not only sells all the major brand tires like Bridgestone, Michelin, and Continental, but they're your go-to shop for everything from oil changes to factory-scheduled maintenance. All repairs are backed by Nationwide Warranty. The team over at Jerry's has been serving the business area for over 62 years, and they are eager to earn your business. Give them a call at 410-685-4330 or visit them online at jerrystires.com to shop for tires and schedule an appointment. That's G-E-R-R-Y-S tires.com. Listen up, moms and dads. All season long at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, kids cheer free. For each regularly priced Upper Deck ticket, adults can get up to two additional tickets for kids ages 9 and under absolutely free. Oriole Park is the perfect place with fun for the whole family. Plus, enjoy smaller portion, budget-friendly concessions perfect for youngsters. And don't forget, you can pack your own picnic and bring it to the park. Kids ages 9 and under are free all season long. Be part of Orioles baseball. Visit Orioles.com slash kids free to learn more. Baltimore's favorite bar is just 771 feet from home play to Camden Yards. Sliders Bar and Grill, just steps from Camden Yards, is the perfect sports bar for baseball season. Daily specials include Mexican Monday, Wing Ding Wednesday, Bloody Brunch Sunday, and more with different drink specials every day of the week. You can also book your private parties at Sliders with great spaces upstairs and on the outdoor patio overlooking Camden Yards. See every Orioles game on dozens of TVs and stop by before or after home games sliders baltimore's neighborhood sports bar see them at slidersbaltimore.com and be sure to visit sliders today one third of crash fatalities in maryland are due to impaired driving don't be a statistic be legendary what does it mean to be legendary it means always making a plan to choose a sober driver or be one never drinking then getting behind the wheel making sure to get a ride for yourself and your friends if needed always speaking up and taking the keys from an impaired driver remember sober drivers save lives. This safety message is brought to you by the Maryland Department of Transportation. Visit BeLegendaryMD.com Respect. It's more than a word. In the U.S. Army, it is one of our core values, earned through selfless service to our nation and making a difference both at home and abroad. On the Army team, respect is earned daily. And now, in addition to earning respect, you may earn up to $40,000 in bonuses if you qualify. To learn more, visit GoArmy.com bonus or call 1-800-USA-ARMY. Paid for by the U.S. Army. 
The latest edition of Press Box is available now on the cover. David Ginsburg profiles new Ravens general manager Eric DaCosta and how he's risen to this opportunity over the last two decades. Plus, Bo Smolka looks back on the career of former Ravens star Haloti Nada, including his off-the-field impact and his chances of reaching the Hall of Fame. Press Box is available for free at over 500 area locations, including 60 Royal Farm stores. You can also find the entire edition as well as the best daily coverage of the Orioles, Ravens, and Terps at PressBoxOnline.com. Glenn Clark and Kyle Ottenheimer here from Glenn Clark Radio. Kyle, you know, I'm regularly asked by folks about how we get so many great guests on our show. Well, I, I work really hard to get some of the biggest names on with us. I know you do, and the world recognizes it, but I want to challenge you to try to get some even bigger guests on the show moving forward. Okay, who do you have in mind? Well, nothing crazy. Like, what about Tim Tebow? Uh, or, or how about Leonardo DiCaprio or, or Lady Gaga, maybe Barack Obama? Uh, you know what? I'll settle for Wilt Chamberlain. But I think he died. What? Yeah, like 20 years ago. So that's a maybe? Maybe Java Chamberlain. Glenn Clark Radio, Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to noon at PressBoxOnline.com slash radio and Facebook.com slash PressBoxSports. No one wants to talk to Java Chamberlain. If trying something new was a bad idea, many of us would still be wearing polyester. This message is brought to you by Glory Days Grill. You may know us for our great burgers and wings, but Glory Days Pros mix it up with the fresh cedar plank salmon, cut in-house and grilled to perfection, or sizzling and juicy steaks, meaty ribs, we have handcrafted salads and sandwiches by our talented chefs, change tastes good. We promise. Experience the Glory Days Grill menu in all its glory. Glory Days Grill. Great food. Good sports. And welcome back to the Bat Around. Craig Heist and Stan the Fan. Hey, head to the Live Casino Hotel for Family Feud Live Celebrity Edition. Comes up on May the 31st. Win prizes. Play along with Alonzo Bowden from the last uh, comic standing and Brian Bumgardner from the office. Tickets start at $25 for one or two shows, either at 1 o'clock or 7 o'clock on Friday, May the 31st. Go to livecasinohotel.com and reserve your place now. All right, that sounds good. That sounds good. Uh, joining us in just a couple minutes is going to be the author of this book, Last Seasons in Havana. I heard him on Ed, Rendell, Ed Randall's show. Randall, uh, yeah. Remember when? By the way, uh, Rico was back on that show this morning. Uh, oh, was he really? Yeah, okay. I thought he had sort of retired or something like that. Yeah, I, I didn't. Well, I don't have my XM uh, hooked up right now. Okay, so. but he was uh, he was on, and it was uh, enjoyable to hear his voice. Yeah, I mean, do you remember him much as a player? Oh Rico? yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I know, remember a forty home run season. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I'll tell you what's interesting about this book, Craig, and again, I'm not going to tell people that I read it. I've read about 15 pages of it over the past couple days. Well, it's definitely something I will pick up and get and get uh, a chance to read it, myself. It has pictures, too, which helps me get well, through about yeah, well, eight or yeah, ten pages. Absolutely. But it, it's interesting how much I've always been fascinated by Cuban baseball players because when I was like four or five years old, I lived in Washington, D.C., and the Senators, because of the scout, Joe Cambria, um, uh, who's actually, I think, Italian, but he was brought up in Cuba, um, Joe Cambria signed a lot of those original guys like Camilio Pasquale, Julio Becaire, and uh, Pedro Ramos. So uh, yeah. the, the Senators had an awful lot of the earliest Cuban players in the major league. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, again, uh, if, if – Certain things 
weren't the way they were. I mean, that was a bevy of talent down there. And uh, as is evident with the amount of international competitions that the Cuban baseball team won down yeah. through the years. Yeah. Uh, we'll be interested to talk to uh, Cesar Briosa to talk a little, Cesar Briosa, to talk a little bit about the Castro Revolution and the end of professional baseball in Cuba. It's interesting. Do you remember the movie, I know you're old enough to remember, the Bingo Long and the Traveling Motor King, the no. Traveling All-Star? Well, I mean, so I'm probably old enough, but was, I don't. It was about the Negro Leagues. Mm-hmm. James Earl Jones was in it. He played sort of a Josh Gibson type character. And uh, I forget who else was in it, but Richard Pryor was in it. And uh, even out of, you know, terrible stories, you have funny scenes. He played a, an African-American baseball player who pretended to be like Cuban. <laughs> so because apparently, and I want to ask him about that if he knows, I think that once before even Major League Baseball allowed Negroes to play in the league, African-Americans, I think they may have let some Latin American of colored skin play in the big leagues as long as they weren't African-American. Yeah. But his character, Richard Pryor, he would talk like when scouts would talk to him, he would talk like with a Latin accent. Uh, very funny. And the one person you forgot to mention, uh, yeah. too, with the Senators was uh, Paul Casanova, the catcher. Well, Casanova came a little bit later, yeah. but also Zoya Versailles. Yeah, was, absolutely. Uh, who yeah. I don't think ever played. Did he play for the Senators or did he first He signed with the Senators and then played with the Twins? He was the MVP in 65 when they, they went to the World Series against Sandy Koufax. Right. And my, the Dodgers in Minnesota, yeah. Yeah. My late friend uh, Sam Mealy used to always say I was just one Jewish holiday away. <laughs> he said if they had had one more Jewish holiday, we would have beat those Dodgers. And That's right. Sandy Koufax came back in Game 7 on two, two days, days rest. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. Uh, we'll look forward to talking to Cesar Briosa. He lives in the D.C. area, by the way. Uh-huh. So, well, it's, it's, it was funny because the one thing I, I always remember about Paul Casanova, other than being a pretty good catcher, right? I have an old scrapbook when Frank Robinson hit the home, the back-to-back grand slams in the fifth inning and the sixth inning, right. down in, in Washington, uh, in, in at RFK, right? And uh, prominently, the picture from the Sun has Frank coming home off the second home run, right? Touching it, and there's Casanova right there in, in the picture. So. All right. Well, joining us right now is the author of the book Last Seasons in Havana: The Castro Revolution and the End of Professional Baseball in Cuba. Cesar Briosa is our guest. Cesar, thank you for taking some time to discuss your book. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. And my co-host is Craig Heiss, by the way. Uh, who worked for a number of years for Radio Marti, part of the Voice of America. Yeah. Uh, okay. All right. I, I'm not trying to be funny to start something off, but I remember, do you remember the movie Bingo Long and the Traveling uh, Motor King All-Stars? Uh, sure, I remember it. It's been years since I've seen it. There was a, a scene, it, it kept recurring, where Richard Pryor's character on this bandwagon uh, African-American team, Negro League players, they were traveling around, and he imitated being Latin. It, apparently, the, the inside joke was that if you were Latin, uh, you, you had a chance to play in the big leagues before Negroes. Do you know if that was true or not? Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've heard, uh, I've read stories about the, some of the, uh, I guess, like the Cuban ex-giants uh, and uh, maybe even the Indianapolis clowns sort of pretending to, to speak 
Spanish, so because it was more acceptable right. uh, for uh, white American audiences, fans, uh, for, uh, to see them in games. Uh, but sure, I mean, uh, you know, the the divide in terms of even Cuban players coming here to the majors, the the ones that made that were able to play here before the breaking of the color barrier, were either white Cubans or uh, Cubans that maybe had uh, uh, mixed, ra- uh, mixed mixed race, race yeah. or distant uh, distant African uh, descent, so uh, they they had lighter skin. Uh, you know, and like when uh, in 1911 when the Reds signed a couple of Cuban players. Uh, you know, I found plenty of instances where sports writers sort of rushed to uh, assure white uh, baseball fans that uh, that those two players, Armando Marsans and uh, Rafael Almeida, were indeed white uh, and 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 not uh, that they didn't have quote any ignoble African blood. And uh, mm-hmm. one quote was described them as the two purest bars of Castilian soap <laughs> ever floated to these shores. So, yeah. sure, uh, the, uh, you know, it would it was an advantage uh, to to be Cuban. Uh, potentially in terms of uh, being able to reach the, the majors in the first half of the 20th century. Now, I never lie to my audience. I got the book about eight or nine days ago. I, my schedule is tough, and I've read about 15 to 20 pages of it. I find it very interesting, though. But one of the first things to pop out at me is the name Bobby Maduro because the Baltimore Orioles played in Miami at in spring training for 25, 30 years at Bobby Maduro's stadium uh, tell us a little bit about Bobby Maduro's history, because he was right in this book quite often in the early parts of it. Yeah, he's a he's a major player uh, in, in in Cuban baseball. He's a Cuban entrepreneur. He and uh, Miguel Suarez built uh, El Gran Stadium in Havana in 1946, uh, which became that season became the home to the Cuban League for all four teams: Alana, uh, Almendares, Cienfuegos, and Marianao. Uh, and he eventually. Uh, owned uh, the Cienfuegos team uh, for several years, mm-hmm. and then bought the uh, the uh, Havana Cubans of the uh, Havana of the excuse me of the Florida International League, and then moved that team to AAA as the Havana Sugar Kings in 1954. Um, and then you know he so he. Uh, the Sugar Kings uh, being in AAA, like, uh, you know, his goal with the stadium and the Sugar Kings was to hopefully eventually bring an expansion team to Havana. The team's motto was, un paso más y llegamos, one more step and we get there. And that wasn't just an illusion mm-hmm. to the players being a step from Major League Baseball, but his goal to potentially bring a, a Major League expansion team to Cuba. What was the baseball like in Cuba pre-revolution? I mean, that seemed to be the golden age for it. Uh, with the players and things like that. And I, as I was telling Stan earlier, I, I think we know what kind of players played down there because of the success the Cuban baseball teams had throughout all international competition, mm-hmm. but specifically that period before 1959. Yeah, I mean, for the, for the, the whole first half of the, the 20th century, uh, there was this back-and-forth exchange of players between Cuba and the United States. Uh, Cuban players, uh, white major leaguers, Negro leaguers, uh, you know, Negro league teams had been coming uh, to barnstorm in Cuba uh, since 1900. Individual Negro league players uh, came to play on the, the, the various uh, Cuban league teams. Uh, American, uh, white American players came down into Cuba as well, and obviously some uh, some Cubans, uh, you know, uh, came to the majors. Uh, that really started to increase, sort of in the 30s and 40s, um, especially as, as Joe Cambria started signing up players for the for the uh, Senators. Yep. But you know, I, what the way it was described to me that uh, 
the, the Cuban League was uh, sort of somewhere between AAA and the majors. Uh, and you get guys uh, who end up uh, eventually with Hall of Fame careers, either as players or managers. But, uh, you know, Monty Irvin, uh, Ray Dandridge uh, played, played in Cuba, uh, Tom Lasorda, uh, Don Zimmer, Bill Verdon, uh, Dick Williams, uh, uh, Hoyt Wilhelm, you know, guys who went on to uh, uh, very good major league careers. Uh, uh, so you had good players there. You had obviously the Cuban the, the Cuban players were very talented, especially you know in in the 40s and 50s. You're talking at that point about uh, Manny Mignoso, mm-hmm. um, Camilo Pasqual, yeah. um, Pedro, Pedro Ramos. Ramos, and even Louis Tion played the final yeah. year of the uh, of the uh, of the Cuban league. The the time of the year that Cuban baseball was was really percolating was that during the off season of Major League Baseball or did they play all year round in Cuba professionally? Well, for the for the Cuban league itself, it was just a winter league. It okay. played from you know October to into February, uh, and that was traditionally the time frame for for the Cuban league uh, since its existence, uh, since it was first formed in uh, 1878, just a couple of years after the formation of the National League here. Uh, but they did play uh, minor league ball there, starting in uh, 46 with the Havana Cubans. That was a summer league in the, in the Florida International League, like I said, and then uh, eventually in the International League uh, in 54. And, and how many years did they, the Havana Sugar Kings play in the um, International League? Uh, from 54 until 1960. Uh, and, and in 1960, uh, with all the, the tensions escalating between Cuba and the United States right. uh, and concerns for player safety among uh, uh, the International League uh, and organized baseball, uh, right in the middle of the season as the Sugar Kings were on a long road trip, uh, Frank Shaughnessy, the president of the International League, finally decided to, to pull the plug and, and mm-hmm. uh, de- ordered that the team be relocated to Jersey City. Uh, and the move happened uh, so fast that uh, when they debuted in Jersey City, they still had their uh, Sugar Kings uniform. Wow. It said in, in red script, Guanos across the chest. <laughs> but what they did was uh, sew a patch on over that, uh, that, that read Jersey City. Uh, they did manage to get the hats that's with a JC on it for, for their debut, but uh, they didn't even have uh, uniforms for the new town that they would be playing in. Did they have a move? Did they have a nickname when they moved to Jersey City, or were they just called Jersey City for that first season? It was the Jersey City Jerseys. Uh, okay. They, uh, are, it was since they were affiliated with the Reds. It was going to be uh, originally they were talking about just calling them the Jersey City Reds. Right. But because of uh, the 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 uh, concerns about communism, communism in yeah. Cuba, that they decided to just go with Jersey City Jerseys. Now you mentioned the name Joe Cambria, and I told you when we were emailing back and forth that I was born in Washington, D.C. in 1952, and I've always owned these 1957 and 1958 Washington Senator yearbooks, and you probably couldn't pick two yearbooks with more Cuban faces in it in, you know, in a Major League Baseball team. What was Cambria's relationship with Clark Griffith like? Or Calvin, uh, or Calvin. He was a scout down there in Cuba, starting really and started signing players for uh, the Senators in the 1930s, and you know by some accounts signed as many as uh, three to four hundred Cuban players. Uh, wow. uh, for the Senators, um, you know, obviously a lot of them didn't make it um, throughout their minor league system, but you know in the in the 40s and 50s there were quite a few Cuban players that that made it up uh, to the Senators at various seasons. Now, was was were they viewed as? By the industry of baseball and by Calvin Griffith, were they viewed as cheap labor? Is that really all it was, or did they think they were really 
bettering the game by having Cuban players uh, become part of Major League Baseball? Well, there was no no question that they were uh, Cambria was signing players on the cheap quite quite a bit. Uh, but you know they also because there was a the level of talent was was good in Cuba they got some really good players like I mentioned before uh, you know uh, Pedro Ramos and and Camilo Pascual uh, uh, Julio Becker was a pretty decent player sure. uh, as well uh, so was Zorio was Versailles was he a, a Cuban born yes yeah that's what I thought okay yeah he was another one and uh, so you know they had players that uh, you know eventually. Uh, you know, uh, and even they, they took players with them when they moved to uh, Minnesota as well. Mm-hmm. That, that were Cuban, good Cuban players. Uh, T- uh, Tony Oliva. Tony's yeah. one, Tony's one of my. I think he's the the most deserving player that should be in baseball's Hall of Fame. That is not right. Yeah. yeah, I thought he was just absolutely amazing. We're Cesar. talking. We're talking with Cesar Brioso, the author of a very interesting book, Last Seasons in Havana. The Castro Revolution, the End of Professional Baseball in Cuba. It's available through um, Amazon uh, and online. Just type it in and you'll be able to purchase it. Cesar, what I wanted to ask you was just the way the game changed in Cuba from the time Castro took control in 59, moving forward, and obviously the restrictions and things of that nature – but just how did that change the game down there? Well, I mean, you had, the, you know, like I said, it was a professional uh, system down there, right? You had minor league baseball in the summer. You had the Cuban Winter League long established uh, for the winter. Uh, so you had baseball year-round. Now, that, uh, that didn't change. You, baseball continued. It just continued under a nationalized uh, system. Right. Uh, one of the things that happened, you know, the, the, the Cuban League, everything was really centralized in Havana, even the Cuban League. The four teams, though they, you know, nominally represented other other locations, Cienfuegos, Marianao, uh, all four teams played in that one stadium in in Havana. Um, so one of the things that happened when uh, moving forward uh, a- after the the cutoff, uh, professionalism ended in Cuba. Um, they they had provincial teams, uh, so that each team had its own province, and players typically, I think, had to be from that province to play for that provincial team. And those provincial teams uh, were sort of the feeder league into the Cuban national team that we saw um, in international amateur competitions, the Olympics, uh, uh, the Amateur uh, World Series, I think it was called at the time, um, eventually uh, took the name World Cup. Uh, And then what we've seen uh, recently in uh, the World Baseball Classic and the Caribbean League. But uh, it's uh, totally nationalized, um, you know, uh, socialist uh, brand of baseball, uh, I think the the, the salary, the, you know, the nominal salary they make is something like fifty dollars a month, the equivalent of fifty dollars a month. Um, you know, and then of course just the cutoff, they were just not uh, permitted to leave. They were barred from leaving uh, to sort of pursue any sort of career here, certainly uh, in the majors. Uh, you know, beginning in the '60s, uh, so just people here never really got a chance to see uh, potentially a lot of, a lot of great players, uh, in Cuba for, for decades. And those teams that were owned by, by Cuban businessmen, such as Bobby Maduro and the other names that are mentioned in the book, those teams were just simply taken away from them, correct? Well, they just ceased to exist, really. Um, right after the, the final season of the Cuban league was, uh, 1960, 61, 
Uh, and with all the tensions going up back and forth between the two countries, uh, Ford Frick uh, banned um, American players from playing that season. Uh, so that season, it was an all-native all rosters for the four teams for the first time in decades. All the, the Cuban players, even the Cuban players in organized baseball and in the majors, were, were uh, allowed to play. Um, but right after the, but after the season ended, uh, I think like two weeks, uh, Cuba officially passed a law that, that uh, ended professionalism, not just in baseball, mm -hmm. but in all sports. All sports. Uh, yeah. It was probably going to be a fait accompli anyway that, that would, something like that would happen. And yeah, moving forward, it was uh, an, uh, you know, a, not a not a professional uh, system like it had been for since uh, uh, 1878. And the players that were Cuban prior to Castro taking over, that were already in Major League Baseball, such as Pedro Ramos, Julio Becker, and eventually Oliva and Tiant and those, they were they were not allowed to return home during off seasons. Correct. Well, the uh, for the 1960 season. Uh, when they were in, in Cuba trying to figure out what was going on, and at that point uh, the diplomatic relations between the two countries had ended, Cuba allowed them to leave, but there was no way to get visas to the United States because there was no longer an embassy, a consulate for, for, for doing that. So they ended up having to go through Mexico to then come uh, to the United States for spring training in 1960. Okay. Now at the end of that se season, that major league season, those players had a decision to make, either stay in the U.S. and potentially not be able to return to Cuba or come to Cuba and potentially not be able to continue pursuing their, their major league careers. Uh, and many of them uh, chose to stay here in the U.S. knowing what, uh, what might happen, that they might not be allowed to leave the, the, for the, the following season. And uh, Louis Tiant, uh, uh, he was uh, uh, playing in Mexico at the time. Actually, it was before he had signed a major league contract, and he was going to come back uh, and do his honeymoon in Cuba, but his his father told him, "Look, don't come back here. You may not be able to leave." Right. And he ended up playing uh, that winter, I think, in uh, I forget if it was uh, Nicaragua or or Puerto Rico, and then returned to playing in Mexico before eventually signing with uh, with Cleveland. Uh, but yeah, the the they would not players who were here uh, were would not be able to return, and anybody who went back to Cuba, uh, sometimes it took years for them to be able to leave. Right, and, and I, I've talked to several players uh, up here throughout the time that I've covered baseball who talk about not being able, haven't seen their families Family in tens of, yeah, 10, 20 years, that kind of thing, and that's uh, that's pretty sad. Well, I mean, if you remember Louis Tiant, he oh, yeah. wouldn't see his parents again until the 1975 World Series. Yep, right, exactly. Yeah. I, I worked with a sportscaster when I was at Radio Marti who – was pretty much a legend, you know, down in Cuba, uh, Guillermo Portuondo Cala, and uh, Willie was what we called him, right. you know, uh, and and Willie would would educate me about all these players and that time period uh, from before Castro took over and also, you know, at, you know, even even the baseball before that, and. Uh, he he would always. I mean, he was such good friends with Orlando Cepeda and and uh, and and Louis Tiant and uh, Perez. You know, mm -hmm. uh, Tony Perez. And and it, it's amazing some of the stories that you hear about just that the fact that you know they they just became isolated. Yeah, it wasn't just the baseball players. It was yeah. uh, it was everybody. Everybody. Yeah. yeah. Left Cuba in 1965, um, and slowly, surely, you know. Most of our close family came here eventually, uh, you know, throughout the 60s and early 70s. 
Uh, but there were there were some family members that uh, stayed behind, and and you know did, we didn't get to see them. It's only been, I think, in recent uh, years that some of them have been able to come uh, to the U.S. either to live or or on visits. But yeah, the, uh, families were separated for decades at times. If we had to put a number on the number of players in 1960 that made that decision not to stay in the U.S. but to go home to Cuba, are we talking about? 150 names that might be on the top of our list of uh, of Major League Baseball players that never ended up pursuing their careers because of uh, because of the restrictions. You're talking about like during the uh, the early uh, '60s players yeah. that came over to the U.S. and then had that decision to make and decided to go home, knowing they were foregoing professional baseball careers. Boy, I, I don't know what the the number would be. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think most of them. I mean, the large, the biggest names you remember are, are they pretty much decided to stay. I yeah. Think, uh, okay. You know, um, I think Sandy Amaros may have come back and and got stuck there for a while. Uh, there's a guy, uh, you know, but I think the the most of the guys who were playing decided to stay because they could see what was going on, uh, what and what might happen in the future. Uh, they made that sacrifice to potentially, you know, not see their families again. Now, who who knows how many players missed out on the chance to come yeah. here, you know, in the yeah. second half of the 20th sure. century. Uh, um, you know, that's, that's a figure that's probably impossible to figure out um, just because, you know, even though they, they were talented and, and got to play on, on an international stage at an am- amateur level, um, you know, they never got tested in, you know, yeah. in the minor leagues or and, and to see just how many of them might have made it to the majors. But I'm sure it, w- it would have been a, a significant number. Our guest is Cesar Brioso, the author of Last Seasons in Havana, The Castro Revolution, The End of Professional Baseball in Cuba. I'm not trying to humanize Fidel Castro because we know what kind of a brutal dictator he was, uh, Cesar. But I'm wondering, baseball, and I don't think it was just he showed it off in photographs, he was very much in love with the game of baseball, and it meant so much to him. I know in his mind that this was a lot bigger than baseball, uh, but did it hurt him? Did it pain him in any way to see the end of uh, professional baseball in Cuba? I mean, look, he was a, a big baseball fan, I think, but baseball also was a, a propaganda tool for yeah. him as well. Um, you know, certainly that was the case in the in the uh, 1959. The Sugar Kings won the International League and faced off against the Minneapolis Millers, the champions of the American Association in the Junior World Series. And he attended each game uh, throughout the first pitch, uh, sometimes arriving late and uh, you know, and he used that that absolutely as uh, you know, sort of a propaganda tool for uh, the the regime as it was uh, uh, being built then. Uh, so, some of the, you know, did, did he love baseball? Yes. Was he was he outwardly was he angry when the uh, Sugar Kings uh, franchise was revoked and moved to uh, to Jersey City? Absolutely. Uh, but you know, he continued to use baseball as a propaganda tool. Uh, throughout the 20th century uh, in, in those uh, amateur competitions, in those uh, international competitions. Uh, so, you know, how much of it was his love for the game and how much of it was uh, uh, political and, and uh, opportunism? You know, uh, people can, can make that decision for themselves. We'll leave, we'll leave some of the politics out of it. Uh, let's fast forward to just recently. There was a, in the Obama administration, there was somewhat of a normalization of re- relations between Cuba and the United States, and it included 
uh, a pathway for players to go right from Cuba to play in the major leagues, sign with major league clubs. That policy has been turned aside by the Trump administration. How do you feel about that, Cesar? Well, yeah, like you, the, like you said, the, the Obama administration had given Major League Baseball um, the clearance to go ahead and try to negotiate some kind of an arrangement with the Cuban Baseball Federation. And after three years of uh, negotiating in December, they announced that they would, um, you know, they had an agreement that uh, players, Cuban players who were 25 years old and had played six seasons would be allowed to uh, potentially sign with, with teams here. Uh, part of the reason for trying to get that deal done uh, uh, was the, the the fact that all these Cuban defectors had been using uh, smugglers and human traffickers yeah. to get out uh, out of Cuba and risking their lives by doing so, and, and Major League Baseball wanted to try and end uh, that practice, uh, um, along with you know the access to to the talent there. Um, and but now with with that uh, agreement being uh, revoked. Uh, you know what we're going to see. I think is the continuation of players trying to defect and players because they're trying to defect, trying to get here, play in the majors, hiring, uh, continuing to hire smugglers and and human traffickers and and risk their lives in that way. And uh, my my concern is for those players. Yep. Uh, and you know what's going to you know the, at some point something really terrible is going to happen, um, given that situation. Um, and so that's my concern. Um, you know. We're, you know, Major League, the power brokers, Major League Baseball, the United States, Cuba, you know, they'll they'll continue on. But it's it's these players who are sort of caught in the middle who uh, want a chance to play at the highest level and, yes, make the money that potentially comes with that. Um, but now that they're going to continue defecting. Um, there's also the, the question, you know, if the agreement had been allowed to go through, it would have been only the players with the best chance of playing that probably would have been signed. Sure. Uh, but now... You know, you're going to have guys who are who think they're good enough, but really aren't, and who knows what's going to happen to them. But one figure I saw in a, in a Reuters story was that something like 350 uh, Cuban players had defected since 2014, which seems like a staggering number. Yeah. Uh, especially when you consider, I think there were 17 Cuban-born players on the opening day rosters this season. Yeah. Uh, so sure, there's a lot more that are in the minors, but that number suggests that there's a lot more guys that are. Uh, maybe stuck in in the third country where they establish residency, or maybe they reach the U.S. and who knows what they're doing. Um, so players are going to be risking their lives with really no guarantee of making it. Um, yeah, and so that agreement would have would have at least uh, certainly dramatically reduced the use of smugglers, and I think would have uh, only the players with the best chance of actually making it would have, would have come here. Last question for you: the players today that we know of, Cespedes, who's with the Mets. Abreu with the White Sox and a couple others, and we have a young Cuban player, Yusniel Diaz, that we acquired in the Manny Machado trade is Cuban. Uh, are they allowed after the baseball seasons today to go back to Cuba and then come here, or is it still a risk for them to be, you know, we know Castro's not alive anymore, but is the system going to ensnare them where if they come home they run the risk of not being able to get back? Yeah, I mean, I mean, they can't just freely travel back and forth. That was the other thing that was going to be part of this agreement, that yeah. those players who, who signed um, uh, under the agreement that, that's now next, uh, they would have been able to go back and forth freely. Uh, you know, could they, could they make special trips? Uh, yes, that's possible. We saw that uh, back in, what was it, 2015. There was a Goodwill tour, uh, Major League Baseball 
uh, went went to Cuba with with uh, some players, and it included uh, some of the defectors. Uh, Yasiel Puig was one of them, and I remember thinking at the time that how that how shocked I was because those guys. Uh, for years, the, any player who defected was pretty much persona non grata as far as the Cuban government concerned, uh, you know, labeled traitors. Uh, so for the, the, the fact that they were able to go there as part of that goodwill tour with the Major League Baseball, that's when I started to think that there was a possibility of some kind of agreement uh, happening. Uh, but now with, with this deal nixed, uh, I, I think it becomes, again, very, very difficult and poten- potentially dangerous for them to, to even try to go back, assuming they would even be granted a, a visa to go, which, which is by no means guaranteed. Cesar, many thanks for coming on, and uh, I'm looking forward to digging into uh, you know the last 80% of this book. Last seasons in Havana, the Castro Revolution, the end of professional baseball in Cuba. Cesar Briosa has been our guest. The book is a Nebraska Press book, and it's available if you go online. I'm sure you can buy it through Amazon or a myriad of other ways. Thank you, Cesar. Thank you. All right. There we have it, uh, Cesar Briosa. Uh, and uh, we are going to talk a little bit about, before we, t- before we sign off, we're going to talk about the uh, print edition of Pressbox. On the cover right now is David Ginsburg's profile of New Ravens general manager Eric DaCosta and how he's risen to the opportunity over the last two decades. Plus, Bo Smoka looks back on the career of former Ravens star Haloti Nada, including his off-the-field impact and his chances of reaching the Hall of Fame. Pressbox is available for free at over 500 area locations, including 60 Royal Farm stores. You can also find the entire edition as well as the best daily coverage of the Orioles, Ravens, and Terps at PressBoxOnline.com. I like world-famous chicken. You like world-famous chicken. We all like Royal Farms world-famous chicken. Why? Because Royal Farms world-famous chicken's always fresh, never frozen. Because it's hand-dipped in a secret recipe of herbs and spices. Because it's cooked on the spot, right in the store. And because it's the juiciest, best-tasting chicken on the planet. That's why everyone likes Royal Farms world-famous chicken. Western fries, too. Real fresh, real fast. Royal Farms. Respect. It's more than a word. In the U.S. Army, it is one of our core values, earned through selfless service to our nation and making a difference both at home and abroad. On the Army team, respect is earned daily. And now, in addition to earning respect, you may earn up to $40,000 in bonuses if you qualify. To learn more, visit GoArmy.com bonus or call 1-800-USA-ARMY. Paid for by the U.S. Army. Section 336 here with all your Baltimore sports talk. The Raven season is now done. But the Orioles season is just ahead. We have a new GM. We have a new manager. We have a few new baseball players out there. Reason for optimism. I don't know if you can name any of those new players. And I think we won 40-some games last year. Yeah, but I remember a terrible year in 1988 where we were able to turn it around the very next year in 1989. Why not 2019? Yeah, why not? Why not check out Section 336 at Section336.com, Facebook, or on Twitter and iTunes as well. Just search for Section 336. 
The latest edition of Press Box is available now on the cover. David Ginsburg profiles new Ravens general manager Eric DaCosta and how he's risen to this opportunity over the last two decades. Plus, Bo Smolka looks back on the career of former Ravens star Haloti Nada, including his off-the-field impact and his chances of reaching the Hall of Fame. Press Box is available for free at over 500 area locations, including 60 Royal Farm stores. You can also find the entire edition as well as the best daily coverage of the Orioles, Ravens, and Terps at PressBoxOnline.com. The Glory Days Grill-to-Go menu is based on a simple reality. You can't spend your whole life at Glory Days Grill. Your boss wouldn't like it, and neither would your kids or your dog. So come to Glory Days and get your food to go. On your way to soccer practice, or to the office, or to, well, wherever. We know the hardest part of visiting Glory Days Grill is leaving. But at least you take a little piece of us wherever you go. Glory Days Grill. Great food. Good sports. As the weather heats up, the menu at Chick-fil-A Nottingham Square cools down, introducing the all-new Frosted Key Lime, a fun twist on one of America's favorite pies. The new treat is a hand-spun combination of Chick-fil-A's signature ice dream, Chick-fil-A lemonade, and natural sugar-free lime flavoring made from a blend of key limes, copper limes, and Persian limes. Frosted Key Lime gets its green color from a mix of nutrient-rich ingredients. Download the Chick-fil-A app today, place your order, and get points towards free stuff at our Chick-fil-A Nottingham Square. Plus, if you order using your app, your food will be ready when you get there. Stop by Chick-fil-A in the Nottingham Square Shopping Center at 5198 Campbell Boulevard and tell Steve we sent you. And welcome back to uh, the bat around. the mics. We're muted. <laughs> Jeez, whiz, we're get... Welcome back to the bat around. Craig Heist along with Stan the Fan. And we are broadcasting live from the Live Casino Hotel Studios right here off beautiful I-83 in downtown Baltimore. <laughs> I, yeah. And we are back. And we are back. And, right. you know. Interesting, uh, interesting show today. Andrew Stetka, Adam Pohl, Matt Slater, Cesar Briosa. Uh, the book is a really interesting read. Really. Uh, and I'm going to get into it. Uh, I'll get a copy of it and right. uh, start. Uh, because I also get the uh, Kevin Cowherd book uh, that is out. Right. Uh, the a day that the crowd I gave didn't you a roar. Copy of that. You did, yeah, yes. Okay. All right. But you wanted to give Adam Eaton one, right? And I will. The White Sox, right? But uh, they've been on the road uh, for the last week. But I'll see him when uh, when when they come home on uh, Tuesday against the Mets. Right. In the meantime, they have two games still to win out in uh, L.A. against the Dodgers. And they've got and, their two very best, uh, Scherzer yeah. and Strasburg. Although Corbin has been, he's been well. Really Corbin good. was lights out in Game One of that series, you know. So uh, again. The starting pitching, I don't think, is an issue. They, but until people get back healthy, obviously, offensively, they're challenged. Bullpen-wise, they're challenged. And uh, it's going to be a little bit of an uphill climb for them to try to get back in this thing. No question about it. No question about it. Orioles uh, tip off tonight at 7, uh, 4.05, excuse me, 4.05 at Camden Yards. It's Bundy versus Matt Harvey. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Nationals game on Masson. Uh, Madison 2. 9.07. 9.07, and it's Scherzer versus Walker Bueller. What yeah. a pitching matchup that is. Yeah. Uh, Ryan McGinnigan did a good job on show number one. A little mm. nervous leading into it, but uh, I don't even think we'll need that call next week. Yeah, not at all. Not yeah. at all. Did a great job. So she's dead to us. <laughs> Useless. Useless, really. Yeah. Hi, Maroon, Mom. Maroon can, Maroon can have her. That's yeah. right. All right. We love our Brittany Everett. All right, that does wrap up our show. Thanks for tuning in. 
Glenn Clark back in the saddle Monday through Friday. And don't forget, Monday morning, normally it's going to be a Tuesday morning release, uh, but Monday morning we're doing the Ross Grimsley show at mm-hmm. 9 a.m. weekly uh, here in the live casino hotel studios. We'd be remiss if we didn't thank them each and every show for their sponsorship of our studio and our program. All right. right. Thank you all. Have a great rest of your weekend, and go O's.